Episode 4. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know. It's the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their leadership to the next level. You can learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Today's podcast will be of particular interest to those on leadership journeys in the health sector or those considering pivoting into leadership in the delivery of quality evidence-based mental health care and treatment. Mary Williams is the Chief Executive Officer at Belmont Private Hospital, Queensland's only dedicated private inpatient hospital for the treatment of perinatal mood disorders. Belmont is a 150-bed hospital employing a team of psychiatrists, medical nursing and allied health professionals. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Penny. Thank you. Lovely to be talking to you. Mary, I usually begin the podcast by asking my guests the question, why does leadership matter? Today, the world is in the grip of COVID-19 and we face an uncertain future. In this context, can you share with us why you believe leadership matters? I guess in this current climate with the pandemic, well, first of all, I'd like to say I never planned to be a CEO in a (laughs) pandemic. Um, In fact, I never really planned to be a CEO, but here I am. And I think leadership is absolutely essential at the moment to keep everybody focused keep everyone calm, be realistic, to communicate with facts and reality. I think at times like this, there's lots of whispers that occur. People are being informed by social media, which can be very helpful and and also very traumatic and very destructive. So there needs to be someone at the top who is communicating with facts. So you're saying during this very uncharted period we're going through at the moment with COVID, that it's essential for leaders to pick up their communication with their people. Absolutely. I think that um, if, if you don't have a strong voice and a clear voice and a confident voice, people will choose to listen to the naysayers and the scaremongers. So I think in these situations, and not that I've been in a situation like this before, but I, I believe that having a very strong, calm, confident voice is essential to keeping everyone on board. Uh, so to that end, I think leadership is essential, not just through being physically present, you know, walking throughout the hospital, presenting as a calm, reassuring and using humour to keep everyone grounded, but also constant communications through memos and emails and ensuring that everything that I'm being informed of through World Health Organisation, Queensland Health, through Healthy Care, that that information is distributed to everybody in the hospital, patients, nursing staff, allied health staff, support staff and the doctors so that everyone is getting the one point of communication. So essential. So through your communications, you're seeking to allay some of the fears that people may be experiencing due to COVID. Look, within reason, uh, you know, here at Belmont, we're in the, the business of delivering good clinical care to people with mental health issues and and illnesses. Um, Naturally, people are are highly anxious in this situation. I'm anxious. Everybody has some anxiety. It's it's a a situation none of us have ever encountered before, you know, a a situation that for the first time in probably 100 years that is affecting both the North and Southern Hemisphere. That's quite surreal when you think about it. So I don't think for one minute that I am allaying everybody's fears, but I do think that by constant calm voice, we're at least trying to keep everybody settled enough 
to keep focused on what it is they're meant to be doing, which is despite the pandemic, we still have a business to run and we still have patients to care for. And that is the, the message I'm trying to get out to all the staff on a daily basis. Yes, you may be anxious, but don't forget we're caring for patients who have anxiety as an illness. So it's very, very important that it may not, you know, completely allay people's fears, but that whilst they're here at work, they're calm enough to deliver the job that they're meant to be delivering. Where did the path that brought you to being CEO of Belmont Private Hospital begin and why healthcare? Quite frankly, I sort of fell into healthcare. I was in the school holidays in high school and a good friend of mine was going for an interview at the Royal Brisbane Hospital for a nursing career. I went along with her. Whilst I was there, I thought, gee, that's not a bad idea. I might put in for nursing. And my mother was a registered nurse. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. I really didn't have any great intentions. I had thought about teaching. I'd thought about physiotherapy. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but it felt right. Once I made that application, I thought, yes, this is what I wanted to do. And so I started my general nursing at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, and I absolutely loved it loved every minute of it. No, that's not probably exactly true. I loved most of it. Some of the matrons and deputy matrons there at the time were terrifying. In hindsight, that probably made us into good nurses because we learnt uh, through excellent clinical care. And I think I do consider I was very lucky in some ways having that hospital-based nursing training, though I think it's wonderful now that it's very much university-based. There's a lot to be gained from that um, learning clinical care at the bedside with some very strict women overseeing how you (laughs) delivered that care. From these early beginnings under the watchful and, as you say, strict gaze of a number of nurse matrons, your interest in working in the area of mental health began to emerge. So what triggered this focus, Mary? So I developed a keen interest in mental health Ironically, when I was working in the neurosurgery intensive care unit where ostensibly caring for patients who were on machinery and ventilators, they were unconscious. And I found a a great deal of comfort, I guess, in, in talking to distressed relatives and very much enjoyed offering that solace and understanding the distress and the isolation and the fear that those relatives were going through and just became very interested in in, I guess, the holistic view of caring for patients, um, particularly with keeping an eye on people's mental health. And I went away for a while. I worked in North Queensland in a small country hospital, Richmond Hospital, where we did everything from setting broken bones to suturing patients. And once again there, working with some of the Indigenous community, it just started to develop a real passion for the mental health arena. Travelled overseas, worked in various hospitals. And when I came back, I thought, no, this is what I want to do. So I thought I'd put my toe in the water and I applied for a job here at Belmont, which all I knew was a mental health facility, didn't know really anything about what it would be like to work as a psychiatric nurse. So I came here and in those states, it was quite a small uh, hospital. I can't remember exactly how many beds it was. I think it was 60 or 70 mental health beds. And once again, found it was something I, I really, really enjoyed. So I then went off and did my um, mental health nursing at Walston Park Hospital, uh, which was a huge eye-opener and once again very beneficial in hindsight to to learn at the coalface how to be a mental health nurse. And I started studying psychology. I didn't finish that degree. I decided that no nursing was where I wanted to stay, but I, certainly the, the studies did assist in, in developing my skills. 
And and from there, as I said, you know, just went from strength to strength, trained in cognitive behaviour therapy, worked as a nurse therapist for quite a while in the therapy program here, and developed a, a huge interest in perinatal mental health. My keen interest in mental health was focused on the mental health of women with young infants and their families, and, and that's an extraordinarily rewarding and rich area to work in. Mary, in 2015, you were awarded an Australia Medal for your work in perinatal mental health, in part for your work in the establishment of the Brisbane Centre of Postnatal Disorders. Can you share some insights into this journey with us? Sure. Look, Penny, I was working um, as a a nurse therapist in the cognitive behaviour therapy program when several people here at the hospital started to develop the perinatal unit. One of the psychiatrists had a keen interest, Dr. Enno Tamitz, in establishing the unit. I was approached at the time, I was pregnant with my fourth child at the time. So I guess the the concept of, of looking after women who are going through such a vulnerable and stressful period in their life really appealed to me, given that I was pregnant my fourth child myself. I had very keen interest in how women cope in that period from pregnancy through to several years postnatally. My husband and I, several years before, had lost our first child. She died suddenly at the age of three. I had never gone through depression myself. I'm very, very blessed and, and lucky that I had never experienced any depression, but I certainly experienced untold grief. We both grieved for, for many years, still do in many ways, but um, I just had become very aware myself that the journey into parenthood, into motherhood in particular, is a very, very tumultuous time and that even though society expects women, displays, you know, the whole concept of motherhood is one of pure, unadulterated joy and, and um, happiness, that it actually can be a time of incredible sadness, of grief. And I'm not just talking about through the loss we had, but just through the loss that women and couples can go through losing sense of their identity for certain people with their personalities that loss of predictability, um, shattering of expectations. There's so many aspects of this journey that are out of your control. How the proposed birth is going to go, if you go into a birth suite expecting to push out a baby in half an hour and not have a cesarean, etc. That can be terribly distressing when women, when things are taken out of their control. Even apart from things like difficult births and, and you know having a, a child with a disability or any sorts of scenarios that are different to the norm. It's just for so many women such a terrible journey into depression and anxiety that doesn't just go away overnight. So it really appealed to me the concept of working with women to, I guess, shatter that illusion that having a baby is just a wonderful experience for all. And if you're not feeling that, then in some way you're a failure. So that sparked my imagination. And 28 years ago, there really wasn't a lot of treatment of postnatal depression. There was probably a lot more breakthrough in the UK and started researching the work of several doctors, perinatal psychiatrists there. And and like so many great things that are developed, it comes from a gem of an idea and you get a whole lot of people on board who have a passion for the area and that passion is incredibly energizing and that's how the unit started with a great deal of energy a great deal of passion and a 
great lot of people who knew not what they were doing in the first instance, but learnt and researched and developed it. And I guess that working with just not just the women, but with their infants, ensuring that vital attachment that we need to have with our infants to enable them to grow into socially, cognitively, emotionally strong human beings, very aware that we had to keep that attachment going. So if you've got a really unwell woman, so important to keep the infant with her and working with that woman to ensure she doesn't lose that attachment, but also working with the partners, working with the families. Was there a particular text you read at some stage that gave you an insight into this level of complexity? There was a great paper written years ago by, I think her name was Selma Freyberg. She wrote about the ghosts in the nursery, which is sort of a psychodynamic view of postnatal anxiety, postnatal depression, that when a woman has a baby, it's not just the baby she's giving birth to. She's giving birth to so many aspects of her past, how she was parented, how her parents were parented. We inherit a template for parenting. And sometimes that template is is not a good guide. So it's a very interesting area to work in because it's so rich in its complexities. This really resonates with me. My own daughter-in-law, Ariane, experienced postnatal psychosis nine years ago. And through her journey to wellness, she leads community change through her work with the not-for-profit organisation COPE, the Centre for Perinatal Excellence, which was established by Dr Nicole Hyatt. Until our family was touched by Ariane's lived experience, we were unaware of how critical access to perinatal mental health is. I think that's so very true because on our journey with this unit, we've obviously reached out to so many people in the community trying to educate people as to what postnatal depression is, how to recognise the signs and how to seek early intervention. Back when we first started, it it was a, a constant push to educate people who worked in obstetrics and child health. Um, you know, some people really got it, but a lot of people didn't understand it or were fearful of it. You know, just because someone is uh, in working in medicine or working in nursing, it doesn't mean they really understand how quickly someone can deteriorate with their mental health in pregnancy and postnatally. And more importantly, they may recognise it, but they don't know what to do with it. So it, it is something, as you say, unless it touches you, it's often seen as the, the elephant in the room. And, and I think going along with that is still that societal expectation that if you've got a baby and the baby's healthy, then how lucky you are and that somehow having negative feelings, somewhat ungrateful. Those are comments that have been made to us that surely, you know, if someone has given birth to a healthy live baby, then why would they become depressed and anxious as if it's a choice? So Mm. until it affects you, yes, um, or affects someone's family, I, I think there's still a stigma around it. And And I think particularly with depression and anxiety, human beings are strange beings in a way that we have to have a reason for something. And if you can see someone with a cast on their leg or someone who's clearly sick and coughing with the temperature, we can accept and understand someone's unwell. But because there's no, well, there is actually a lot of physicality about depression, but because most of the time people can't see symptoms, they don't understand it. So they turn away from it. And I think that's particularly true with postnatal depression. It, it, It just makes no sense to people that someone could be so very, very unwell. I imagine that leading teams who are working with such a vulnerable patient cohort comes with its unique challenges, Mary. How important is it for the leader in this environment to provide mentoring, coaching and development to those teams on the front line? 
Look, it's absolutely essential. This could be exhausting work and, and you need to be very careful in the team that you choose to work in that area because a lot of people think working with mothers and babies sounds like a lovely, fluffy sort of job. And some people come along with their passion, in inverted commas, for working in this area, when in fact it may be that they themselves are trying to work through their own issues. You've got to be very careful with that, that you have very um, strong boundaries in place, that sometimes when people come along, they can overshare their own experience of having children and or their own depression. Um, and that's not what our patients need. They need someone who can work alongside them, but not burden the patients with their own stories. It's very tiring sometimes working in this area because if a mother is very unwell and you've got an infant uh, to look after as well, it's very important. Our ethos is not to take over the care of the infant. Very, very important that we don't um, undermine the mother's relationship with her infant or more importantly, you know, undermine her mothering capacity because sometimes by the time the women come to the unit, well-meaning relatives, and I, I mean this very well-intentioned relatives, have taken over the care of the infant and ostensibly have undermined the woman's uh, belief in her ability to mother. So it, it's really important that you lead a team that can work alongside the mother but not take over the care. Though, of course, when women are very, very unwell, the rules change there a bit. You do need to you know, assist with the care of the baby, obviously. Sometimes in a unit where there's a number of women, there's a lot of demand on the staff time. The demand can be unprecedented when you've got a unit with, say, 10 mothers and 10 or 12 got twins and everyone's crying for attention. It's necessary to have a strong team, to lead a strong team. It can be exhausting. The, the cry of the unmet need of the mother and the cry of the, the needs of the infant, it's, it can be psychologically very, very demanding. And do you find that the people who carve out a career in this space are those who have, have that additional level of resilience? I do. I, I think that some people are naturally attracted to this area because they are good at, at, as you said, it's got a resilience in them. They want to help people, um, but also know that helping is not to be confused with doing for. It's about walking alongside a person so that they can get to be the best well person they can be. Yeah, there is the resilience. I'm very, very proud. I'm very proud of everybody who works at Belmont. I think everyone here is just fabulous and just an incredible team but in the perinatal unit they are a solid team many of them the nurses there in particular have been there for decades and I mean I started off as I said in that area I was pregnant and, um, and I went and had another baby after that and and I guess in some ways I, I see the development the conception of that unit and development of the unit has sort of been marked by the milestones of my own children's growth <laughs> and I and I think that's true for so many of the women um, and it is predominantly women who work in the unit, which is interesting. Uh, we have had male staff work there and you know, obviously a lot of the, the doctors who work there are male, but it has been a predominantly female unit. And um, and I, I know that if you were interviewing anyone who works in the unit, they will all say how much they love it. That's a wonderful thing to have people who've worked in an area from its birth to its maturity. Your lengthy career has traversed Belmont services, influenced its growth and development and earned you the top job. What insights do you have from this journey that you can share with the listeners, Mary? Really, not just get stuck in one area, but if you do get asked to move to another area to work, don't be scared, embrace it. You know, Change can be frightening, but you'll find the more you do embrace change, the more you grow as a person. 
Uh, I've worked in just about all the areas of the hospital to working predominantly in the perinatal unit, um, working as a, a nurse therapist in the unit, working up to be a clinical nurse specialist in the unit, then the manager of the unit. And then uh, about 14 years ago, we went through a restructuring here and without any intention, plan or desire, I became an area manager and inherited not just the perinatal unit, but a 39-bed acute mental health unit plus a 12-bed trauma and dissociation unit. So I was looking after quite a big area of the hospital and I did that for a number of years and absolutely loved it. The trauma and dissociation unit, which I, as I said, inherited because I had no real concept of dissociative identity disorder, complex trauma and the work that they were doing. But I grew to love it. I developed a great deal of respect for the psychiatrists and the, the staff who worked in that area who look after a, a cohort of patients who are so very traumatised and kept them safe and well. And I really did grow to love it dearly. And I acted in director of clinical services role a number of times whilst the person who was in that role went on holidays. And then there was a couple of changes here in the executive role. And essentially, I went into an acting director of clinical services role for a while. Then I was appointed director of clinical services. And then I was appointed deputy CEO, director of clinical services. And here I am now, <laughs> CEO, director of clinical services. So I've gone up a ladder without really wanting to put my foot on any of the rungs. But somehow here I am at the top. And Mary, how has spending time on each of those rungs influenced your own leadership development? I think it's absolutely essential to having spent the time on the rungs. I understand everybody's role in this hospital. I value everybody's role in this hospital because I've been in quite a few of those roles myself. And I know what it's like to, to feel sometimes disempowered or not understanding why people are making seemingly arbitrary decisions about so many aspects of the hospital. So I think that having that understanding helps in your own communication to people, knowing that when you're giving a directive, for instance, there has that directive needs to make sense. It needs to have meaning for people. I, I really try to keep that in mind when I am issuing any sort of instructions to people as to why something needs to happen. If people understand it and make sense to them, then they may not get as fearful or as angry. People become angry and anxious when they feel disempowered or they feel confused or they believe people are making decisions about things and not understanding the reality of the cold face, working with patients on the floor, dealing with distressed relatives, um, working sometimes with time frames that are tight. If people know that you understand that, then I think they work with you better. Mary, if listeners are contemplating a shift into mental health, what information and insights would you share with them to help them in their decision making? I think people need to understand what working in mental health is about. I, I know we have a fantastic relationship with a number of universities and colleges and we take a, a you know, strong number of nursing students through here. I guess having an understanding of what mental health work is about, it's not about coming in and lecturing people into wellness. It's not about jolling them along or preaching at them. I guess it's about you need to have an understanding of human behaviour. And to some people, that seems to come naturally. So being able to be flexible, being able to understand people's behaviour, to have, a, have a, I guess, a, a real, really keen interest in 
the human psyche, human behaviour, why people act the way they do, that's one thing. I think obviously having an understanding of the, the different mental health illnesses Having an understanding, I know, I guess this is why I love the perinatal area, having an understanding of someone's childhood and their attachment and the development of childhood to adolescence to an adult on that journey, how that psychological journey, things can go awry. So I, I don't know, I, preparing for a shift into mental health is, first of all, you'd want to do it around it all. It's a very, it's a highly visible job. There's lots of tasks to perform, but I guess the most important task of all is the the task of being empathic, understanding, non-judgmental, keen, interested, curious, and very much invested in being on the journey with the patient to get them to where they need to be. That's a great set of KPIs for anyone working in the mental health sector, Mary. Empathic, understanding, non-judgmental, keen, interested, curious and very invested in being on the journey with the patient. So what stops people pursuing this path as a career option? Sometimes when people are very guided by policies and protocols, they can't see the, the forest for the trees. They, they tend to think, well, if it doesn't fit into this box, if it's not guided by this algorithm, that I don't know how to act. And I, I think one of the, and we do have policies and protocols here, believe me, and I enforce them, but, but I do also embrace staff who can look at a situation and think quickly. Yeah, I don't think anyone comes into any job with a vast variety of skills. I, I think if anyone says that, that, you know, because they've been at uni for so many years and they've got a, you know, masters in something, until they've been at the coalface of any industry, they are not skilled. I think the skill comes from a period of time and certainly having your ears open, willing to listen and learn and be told, and most importantly, learn from your mistakes. You know, I think back in my career, mistakes I've made, I've learned from them and I'm so glad I made those mistakes because it helped me grow as a person. It helped me to understand myself my colleagues and and patients. Mary, you've given listeners such rich insights and takeaways from your leadership journey. Before I thank you, I have one final question. Given you're embedded in the mental health sector and we're all operating in uncertain times, what three tips would you leave us with that we can be doing to look after our own mental health at this time? Well, in this strange new world of physical distancing, Remember, it's physical distancing, not social distancing. Stay socially connected. That look, that's so important for this, you know, current climate. But it's important for it's a takeaway for anyone in your entire life. Stay connected. Stay connected with people who like you, people who care about you, and more importantly, people who are not going to put you down. Surround yourself with people who believe in you and be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Just be yourself. And I think that's so important. And um, and don't be ashamed to put your hand up and ask for help. Everybody is impacted by this. You know, times of adversity don't grow character. They reveal true character. So don't expect yourself to be strong and stoic through this just because everybody's telling you this is the way it's meant to be. If you are struggling, reach out for help. Thank God in this day and age, there are so many avenues for help. There's so many phone numbers you can access to seek support. So don't do this alone. Don't, it's not the time to be stoic. It's the time to surround yourself, albeit with a physical distance, with, um, with, with support. Mary, I want to thank you for being a wise and insightful guest on this episode of What Leaders Know. Your generous sharing of a leadership journey in the mental health sector has provided listeners with valuable takeaways. 
and you have opened up an important conversation about perinatal mental health that I want to continue. Thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure, Penny. For listeners who have a further interest in perinatal mental health, join me in episode six, where I will have a conversation with Ariane Beeston, former child protection psychologist turned writer and mother of one. Ariane now combines her lived experience of perinatal mental health and professional insights as she leads community change through her work with COPE. Thank you for joining me in today's episode of What Leaders Know. For show notes from today's episode, head on over to my website, whatleadersknow.com. Tune in again next week for another conversation with an accomplished leader. I'm Penny Beeston and this has been What Leaders Know. Stay safe. Thank you.